welcome to Halting Towards Zion, the podcast where we limp like Jacob to the promised land and talk about life, the universe, and everything along the way. I'm Emily Maxson here with Ray Guttinger, and we have come to the most famous story of Daniel, I think. Would you agree? I think so. I think every small child raised in a Christian home has heard of Daniel in the lion's den. Yeah. Some of us have even seen it portrayed in by talking vegetables. Oh wait, no, this one did it. Yes, because there was the song about the oh no, what am I going to do? Looks like I might end up as lion stew. (laughs) Missed that. It was one of the most kicking VeggieTales songs. (laughs) Was all the all the um, evil counselors getting together and conspiring against Daniel? But we're getting ahead of ourselves. (laughs) We are in Daniel chapter six. And we have come to quite a late point in Daniel's life. Um, he's not a kid <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Despite what the Bible picture books might tell you. Yeah, Bible picture books, man. Well, the Babylonian Empire lasted about 70 years. He was probably around 17 when he was taken captive. So he may be pushing almost 90, mm-hmm. late 80s. And we've talked a little bit about his role in Babylon and how he was part of the government. He had an official role despite being a member of God's kingdom. (laughs) Funny. And and, and interestingly enough, he had no problems with it. Well, I shouldn't say he had no problems with that. He had quite a few problems (laughs) with that. He had specific problems. He had very specific problems, but day-to-day operation, he did not think he was betraying Yahweh, his king or the hope of the Messiah, or the worship of God, or any such thing. And and there's some interesting things there. If we knew a little more about what he actually did, we could work it out, perhaps. But as more or less second ruler of the kingdom, eventually, all of the wealth of the empire was passing through his hands, and that that wealth came largely from conquest of other nations. True, God approved of those conquests to a degree, but they weren't done nicely. <laughs> and I think a lot of Christians would have trouble with that. But Daniel simply sort of didn't ask, didn't tell, and just managed what was given to him in yeah, an it's kind of way. strange that we have a concept of ethical warfare, right? Yeah. Like, is it worth it warfare or is it ethical? <laughs> you know, but, you know, we have the Geneva Convention and everything. Because uh, of the influence of Christianity. Right. The pa- they didn't the have the Geneva Convention <laughs> in Babylon. Yeah. Well, yeah. There, was, there was no such thing in the ancient world. You you fought to survive or you fought to destroy. It was that simple and the strongest nation won. Or the mm-hmm. cleverest, as the case may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, with the death of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel had been not forced into retirement, but sidetracked into other work. We find him in one of his later visions as uh, apparently an ambassador in Elam, which some city that would belong to Persia shortly. So even Belshazzar, who tried to pretend he didn't know him, apparently thought he was too valuable of an asset to just dump it at old folks over something. <laughs> and uh, he he's within call the night that, that Babylon falls. He did not, he, he had to know what was coming. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, he didn't leave. Uh, he knew the armies of mm-hmm. Cyrus were out there. He he seems to have known. We'll talk about his possible relationship with Cyrus later. But he apparently knew who Cyrus was and knew that his armies were coming. 
And rather than go over the other side, he didn't betray Babylon. He stayed at his post. He stayed in the city when it went under siege. Uh, he knew that the Persians would win, but he didn't know exactly on what terms or how long it would take or what would happen to him along the way. Um, but he he stuck at his duty post, an old man uh, in a pagan empire that doesn't appreciate him, that sidetracked him, sidelined him, and yet he keeps doing his thing. Mm-hmm. And then, There's a parallel here with Joseph, of course. Yes, of course. I always wonder about Joseph. I, I forget if we've talked about this before, but Joseph had a job to do that was basically enriching Pharaoh. It was mm-hmm. kind of his job. Yeah. And he did this by abolishing private property. <laughs> And I just, I don't feel good about that. (laughs) I mean, he, on behalf of Pharaoh in a time of famine, just bought up all the land and all the food. And then everyone was dependent on the Pharaoh. Sounds like capitalism to me. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, but like state capitalism. Nobody else. (laughs) Uh, Well, one problem is that our idea of the state and theirs were very different because ours has been influenced by Christianity. For us, the state is a construction of the people by contract or covenant that exists in the abstract in which we fill with different officers from time to time. You can be president for four years and then never serve in public office again. And you're probably not going to get rich just by being president. You have to have a side <laughs> hustle. Whereas yeah, in the or, angel- or children who are up to no good, yeah, just potentially. Yeah, potentially. Whereas in the ancient world, if you were a king, you were king by divine right and by divine nature. You were the son of a god. And therefore, you automatically deserved everything, owned everything, and private property was a much vaguer concept. Uh, But still, um, taxes were not paid to a government of the people, was paid to one particular man who then decided to what degree he wanted to encourage, bless, provide for his people. Because uh, if he didn't do it at all, there's the problem of revolution and uh, mm-hmm. assassination and such. But the money actually, the money that the king got was actually the king's money. It wasn't mm-hmm. money held in trust for the people to be used for the people. Right. It was his own, his, own, his own stuff. So it is after a manner, after a manner capitalism. But you're, but you're right. It's the capitalism of the god king sitting on the throne. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not American capitalism either. So th- this is a problem when you start comparing across uh, worldviews and timelines mm-hmm. that sometimes you just can't. Yeah. As to your, your question, was Joseph justified? I have not worked that one out myself. I've seen justifications. I have not found them totally convincing. Um, but then there's also the possibility that, not meant, that Joseph's action is not meant to be a blessing to a basically pagan people, that he de- he is enslaving them to the Pharaoh who actually confesses God to be God. But the problem is that the Jewish or the Hebrew people were also enslaved, like the next generation when the yeah. Pharaoh rose who knew not Joseph. He still had all those riches. Oh, he did. Yeah. And was... the Hebrews did not. <laughs> but then that was the setup yeah. for God coming in with, with all of the miracles from Moses and smashing the greatest empire on earth down to nothing so that God could be glorified. So arguing from providence is always chancy when God has not spelled out exactly <laughs> why he has done Ironic things. that you should put it that way. <laughs> Someone has said that providence is a, is a great diary, but a rotten predictor. Hmm. Um, yeah. My, we can see one what of my God elders has at the done. church Sorry? would say, it's like Hebrew, you can only read it backwards. Uh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So anyway, yeah. So Daniel's a lot like Joseph and no doubt really early on when this whole thing of interpreting dreams came on, Daniel probably thought, wow, this is a lot like Joseph. I wonder if, mm -hmm. um, and, and that has been played out to a good deal, but unlike, we're not told exactly, um, if Joseph outlived his Pharaoh or not, um, the only hint about the Pharaoh's age perhaps is that when he sees Jacob, he basically says, wow, you're old. <laughs> um, but hard to tell what that might mean in the context. Yeah, so young they, people think everybody looks old. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's an ongoing <laughs> thing in our family. And so my girls say, yeah, the guy was really old. And then they look at me. <laughs> I look back and then they say, well, no, you're not fair because you don't look, you don't look old. Thanks. <laughs> that makes that one better. Oh, <laughs> uh, so Joseph died apparently in peace because his bones weren't destroyed or anything. They were left alone. And, and, and then eventually, maybe immediately or soon after, there arises a Pharaoh who doesn't know him. That is, doesn't acknowledge his God. He certainly knew who he was. And here, uh, we, we had Belshazzar who came up and did not know mm -hmm. Daniel or pretended not to know him, <laughs> yeah. refused to know his God. But now this is a new thing. God never tells the same story twice. And so just when uh, Belshazzar is there, we don't have an exodus of God's people. Well, and yet we do. Now that mm -hmm. I think about it, because that is the next story. But to accomplish that, we don't have God come in and destroy Babylon. We have God handed over to the Medes and the Persians, to one Darius or Cyrus. And he then arranges for a second exodus. So there, there is a lot of similarity, but it's not quite the same story. And again, you, you can't look back at what God has done in the past and predict exactly how God will tell the story this time. Trust the storyteller, but don't expect him to be predictable. And so we come to chapter six. And I guess this is a good time to start reading it. Mm -hmm. It pleased Darius, or Darius if you prefer, to set over the kingdom 120 princes who should be over the whole kingdom. And over these three presidents, to use an English and American term, of whom Daniel was the first, that the princes might give account to them and that the king should have no damage. Well, we saw in the last chapter that Babylon fell in a night. The secular historians, particularly Herodotus, tell us that Cyrus had his engineers divert the rivers of the Euphrates that ran through the city and sent his shock troops in underneath the gates through the, through the mud and the reeds. And they went and opened the gates, and then the army came in, and basically Babylon fell without much of a, without much of a struggle because they didn't see it coming, and they were all busy getting drunk, actually. Uh, and Belshazzar died that night, but Daniel didn't die. But even though Daniel was wearing this this ribbon and medallion that say third ruler in the kingdom, <laughs> which again suggests a link here. Yes, chapter 8 of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel. After that which appeared unto me the first, I saw in a vision, and it came to pass, when I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And he goes on and tells about uh, a vision of um, a, a ram and a he-goat and some other things that, that prophesied the coming of the Persians. 
and what lies beyond that of Greece. But for our purposes here, he was in Shushan in the palace in the province of Elam. At that point, Elam was a province of Babylon. But Shushan, the palace, is where the Book of Esther is set, at which mm, point it is I a Persian... I was thinking it sounded familiar. I yeah, it's the Persian Esther. capital at that point. So Daniel had been traveling in those regions, apparently, the, the obvious thing, unless, he's, unless he was turned into a simple messenger, which at his age would be <laughs> kind of dumb. He was probably there as an ambassador of some sort. And it is not unlikely that a rising star like Cyrus might bump into him. At least they would hear of each other. Uh, Daniel, no doubt, had the same kind of reputation out there as he had at Babylon for honesty and integrity and wisdom and fair dealings. You get a, you get a good deal from this guy. So that when Darius takes the kingdom and runs into his guys, you know, bring the rulers one by one in front of Darius, there would be this, wait, Daniel, Daniel, is that you? Yes, sire, it's me. Uh, what are you doing here? Well, holds up the medallion. Third ruler, it seems. Really? Why not second? Well, you see, there's Nebuchadnezzar. You know, okay, fine, fine, fine. Okay, come, come talk to me. We gotta have coffee. Now. I, I got, I got work. I have work for you. Because Darius um, makes him basically this right off the bat. He he's been working for Belshazzar and for Nebuchadnezzar before that. And, and Darius simply says, "You're going to be my right hand guy because I trust you." There's got to be some background there. There's got to mm -hmm. be something where, whereby he knows that, you know, you generally don't take, yeah, you might reach down into the, into the hierarchy and pick some, what was the Netflix special when the only surviving member of the cabinet was like. Oh, designated survivor. Designated survivor. Yeah. You know, there's times when you pick the designated survivor and make him president because he knows the rules, but he's got no political aspirations. Um. <laughs> But Daniel, third ruler of the kingdom, that's trusting it, such a guy. Is it possible he was playing both sides? Who, Daniel? Yeah. Uh, given Dan given Daniel's integrity, I don't think so in any meaningful sense of the word, unless you count being honest and fair mm -hmm. and equitable, playing both sides. I'm I'm sure that when he tried to negotiate peace, he actually tried to negotiate peace mm -hmm. rather than hostile takeover. He did whatever he had done. He had done it in such a way that Darius could depend upon depend upon him to be faithful to whoever he was working for. Mm -hmm. He he knows he's not a Babylonian. He's not Chaldean. Right. He's, I he's mean, Jewish. it kind of helps that he's not right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it was not uncommon for kings to pull into their cabinets people from other countries and into their uh, bodyguard and their cup tasters mm -hmm. as well, because someone from your own country, maybe from another noble family, has his and. Uh, aspirations <laughs> for the throne. So it's good to have outsiders, as it were. Whatever the case, Daniel's put at the top of these people. And the, the first, Darius's first concern here is, is reorganizing the bureaucracy so that it is answerable to him in, an, in a reliable and, and speedy fashion. And he's thinking of making Daniel, even putting him even higher up, the king thought to set him over the whole realm probably at least over Babylon, the whole province, it's not just the city, maybe over the entire empire, depending how you want to read that. Well, the other people involved in this were jealous. The presidents and the princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault for as much as he was faithful. 
Neither was there any error or fault found in him. That speaks to his integrity, also to his intelligence and wisdom. Not only was he a good old boy, he knew what he was doing. You couldn't catch him on, well, that was, that was well-intended, Daniel, but that was really politically very stupid. There was none <laughs> of that. He was wise. He was savvy. He knew what worked and didn't work. He knew what would benefit his king and what wouldn't. He knew what was honest and what was a lie. And he pursued all of it with intelligent integrity. And this frustrated his enemies because they, they're used to being able to, you know, you, there's got to be some way to blackmail the guy or, or something, get some kind of dirt on him. But there was nothing. We're never told if Daniel had a wife or not. He doesn't seem to have had, but possibly. Uh, but there's no hint of any kind of sexual scandal or anything like that. Not probably in that world, it wouldn't have mattered. <laughs> um, so they, they try to come up with something else. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. The one thing they realized that he was a stickler for was what his God said. Now, they didn't know the law particularly, so they would have to go for something pretty straightforward and simple, and it would not be hard to, to find out about the whole idolatry thing. Stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were still probably circulating, because if they wanted to find anything about Daniel, they'd find out about his friends and the whole, we won't bow down to this idol no matter what. <laughs> Maybe they'd seen the veggie tail on that one. Um, <laughs> so they they have a brilliant idea. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said unto him, King Darius, live forever. We're going to come back to that phrase um, because it means absolutely nothing <laughs> from a pagan point of view. Everyone knows that kings die. And if you mean... We we're, we wish for you your eventual deification, okay, but that it's it's flattery. Daniel's going to use the words later, and they're going to mean something. Uh, all the presidents and of the kingdom, the governors, the princes, and the counselors, and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for thirty days takes about 30 days to form a habit or unform one. Save thee, O king, he shall be cast into a den of lions. Now, this would seem strange to us if somebody said, "Let's Congress is making a law that all prayers and other formal requests of any sort must pass through the president's office. We would look at them like they're crazy. This did not sound crazy in this world, because back to the very beginning of all of our podcasts, continuity of being. <laughs> All reality is one, but some reality is more real than others. Yeah, the cream of wheat analogy, which I won't repeat. <laughs> um, divinity, is, divinity is spread in all of reality, but it's clumped together in some places and things and objects more than others. Some objects uh, have more divinity, more divine essence than other things. And some people do, and some structures do. So Jesus was the most divine man that ever lived, right? Yeah, from that point of view, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that's... <sighs> Sometime we should do a podcast on uh, Gene Roddenberry's view of Jesus and Christianity and such. It's basically universal uh, universalist Unitarianism. Hmm. Uh, there's, there's that episode where Kirk says of the planet they've just left, Christ and Caesar, they had them both. And the word is spreading <laughs> only now. Philosophy oh of total brotherhood and total love. 
And we'll maybe, <laughs> maybe that should be our next podcast is halting through Star Trek. <laughs> I would, would actually be, watch Star Trek if we did that. That would be, that would be interesting. But uh, a lot when the original series was on, a lot of young Christians said, oh, this is so good. They have Jesus. They have another Jesus <laughs> yeah. who was also the son of God. And when Roddenberry was asked about this, he said, yes, of course, Jesus is divine. Just like my mother's divine, my wife's divine, my I'm divine, you're divine. Every, yeah, it was just more continuity. Some people are, are just more in touch with their divinity. Like some people are more in touch with their feminine side. Some people are more <laughs> in touch with their divinity than others. But in that ancient world, divinity especially expressed itself in the king, the emperor. It was often called the son of God. Wasn't in, in, in Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia was a little more humble than that, but not a lot. Uh, they were they were servants. They they would come and take the right hand of the gods and, and thus be acknowledged as their representative, the mediator between the gods and men. But there was no sharp division. It wasn't the creator reaching to a mere creature and endowing him with covenantal responsibilities. It was a contact. I mean, think of the, the picture of E.T. reaching out to little <laughs> Elliot and touching his finger to finger. In um, the original, in Michelangelo's work on the Sistine Chapel, God's finger does not touch Adam's. Mm -hmm. He recognized that there's an eternal barrier there. But here, the gods touch you and, and ignite your divinity. And so, since this was uh, Darius's position by nature, he did not immediately see any problem in, in taking this next step. Mm -hmm. Besides, in addition to the fact that he was more divine than everybody else, uh, Babylon had brought all of the gods of the lands that had conquered back to Babylon. They were all in the Temple of Bel, or Marduk. Mm -hmm. So he had immediate access to it. Now he actually, and sometimes liberals make a big deal of this. Well, yes, he sent the Jews home and sent back the temple treasures, but that was no big deal because he sent everybody's idols back home and everybody's stuff back home. He did because he saw no particular need for it. And probably after his conversion, he really saw no need to have them and just sent them back their merry way. Um, but right now he was there. And to the Babylonian mind, he had to confirm himself as the servant of Bel. And all the other peoples who did not have access to their idols, their gods, would be comforted knowing that they had a representative who would go in and speak for them. They had a mediator between God and men. So he didn't really see that, he didn't see any political problems with this. this. This sounded good on all sides. No philosophical issues. There was a little thing that the presidents and princes had said, we all agree. Well, that was a lie because they had not asked Daniel. If they had honestly said, we all agree, except Daniel, that probably would have caught his attention. Yeah. Why? Go what get is, Daniel. Let me ask yeah, him what's, why. What's with Daniel then? What's the problem? What am I missing here? Yeah. Part of but, the absurdity too, you know, you said if, if this were to come about today where we have to send all our petitions to the president's office, that would seem absurd because- Formal prayer, yeah, has disappeared. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, prayer is today internalized and mm. silent. It's thinking in God's direction, <laughs> yes, rather than actually saying anything that anyone else might hear. Mm -hmm. Yes, unfortunately, often so. Or when it is spontaneous and free and out loud, it's more of a ramble than any kind of formal organized petition. Uh, or it becomes 
or some of us very rote as we say the words of the of uh, either the um, prayer book or of the um, the Lord's Prayer or some such thing for the millionth time without thinking what we're saying. So there's always that danger, mm-hmm. always a danger of turning our relationship relationship into God into something purely mechanical and magical, or simply imaginary. We just we mm-hmm. say these things. You mean God's listening? I didn't expect him to listen. So anyway, the the king is asked, uh, now, O king, establish a decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes of the Persians, which altereth not. Because the Persians did demand one thing of their king. If he's going to represent divinity, divinity must be self-consistent and immutable. God can't change his mind. And so if this is in truth a word representing the divine mind, then once you say it, it's said, you can't undo it. Here it's the Medes and Persians in Esther. By the time the Persians have asserted themselves more thoroughly, it becomes the law of the Persians and the Medes, but it's the same thing. Uh, and um, as we as we do go through Ezra and the other books, well, not so much Esther, but Ezra, when the, another Darius comes to the throne, he is very careful. Okay, tell them to shut down this temple building stuff until you hear from me again. <laughs> He learned the lesson. Always yeah. leave the loophole. Always leave yourself a way to to turn the thing off once you started it. <laughs> Mop yourself out. <laughs> yes. And um, yeah. And Hazarius trusted Haman too much on that one. So they have to find another way around that, the book of Esther. Anyway, the king signs the decree. And Daniel, when Daniel knew the writing was signed, he went into the house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. So he would climb up the chair, the stairs into some upper chamber, open his windows toward fallen Jerusalem. Solomon had spoken about the day mm-hmm. when God's people would be in captivity if they prayed toward this place, even though it's desolate now. God had promised to hear. So Daniel is is observing the externals, but he's also doing it faithfully from the heart. He, like the psalmist, he prays three times a day, morning, noon, and night. And he does not try to hide it. He could have. There's nothing that said that he couldn't close the windows. But, you know, at 90, who cares? <laughs> oh, they're going to throw me to lions. I am so scared. He <laughs> I'll had, be robbed of a long life. Oh. Yeah, he, he'd settled the, the issue of ultimate allegiance way back when he was a teenager. He's, he's not going to change things. This is not to say there's not a time for the church to go underground, but he did not see that this, for him, was an issue. We don't know what anybody else did, whether the other Jews in Babylon um, met together secretly or didn't meet together for a little while. But Daniel had no problem with going on and doing what he was doing. He knew he was being watched. It was The whole thing was <laughs> obviously a trap. Probably sorry that Rice got caught in it, because he would know the man and know that he didn't mean him any ill will. But he's going to go ahead and do what he's going to do. And uh, these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. By the way, notice it says that he prayed and gave thanks. Sometimes in the midst of uh, tribulation and persecution, that's not the first thing in our mind. Mm, yeah. we, uh, we don't do a lot of that. But he did. Then these uh, these other rulers came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. 
Hath I not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within thirty days, save thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Then answered they and said before the king, That Daniel, that Daniel, <laughs> which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, yeah, that slave, regardeth thee not, O king, they're trying to make it personal, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh his petition three times a day. And when the king, the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself. Hmm. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar and the whole Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thing. Now, this is a different sort of man we're dealing with. And he does love Daniel and values Daniel and realizes, I was so stupid. I walked into a trap. I didn't see it coming. My friend's going to die. What can I do here? He's probably not too happy with the people who tricked him either, <laughs> but right now he's more upset with himself for being stupid. Um, he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. So he was going through the the laws, looking for a loophole, a stipulation, a precedent, something that would allow him to get around his own decree. And at the end of the day, the other guys come back and say, uh, no. You know how this works. Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that there is no decree nor statute which the king established that may be changed. In other words, you won't be king anymore if you don't follow through. And he has some kind of respect we're going to see for Daniel's God, but not enough to take on the, the assembled nobility at this point. And so he caves. He does what he said he would do. Uh, think of uh, Herod. I know I swore an oath that I would give you whatever you wanted, but I didn't realize you you want John the Baptist's head. Oh, well, an oath is an oath. Guess I have to do it. It's not this man. He wants, he, he, he's still hoping against hope almost. The king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into a den of lions. Why the den of lions? Because they had one. I <laughs> zoo. I don't know. Maybe they, you know, they, I, there was a den of lions. I'd be curious to know more about the Persian symbology. I guess because, like, you know, when you see in ancient Roman stuff, you see the leopard, and it's like, mm -hmm. oh well, there's Julius Caesar. Mm -hmm. It's like, I wonder if there's any significance to lions. I, I, I don't know. Uh, well, there is significance in terms of the book of Daniel that we'll get to of in a course. bit. Of course, yeah. But I don't know if there was within Persian culture. I never went across it. Now, the king spake and said to Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. I think the first thing to notice is that Darius knows that Daniel faithfully serves his God. How would he know that? Because Daniel didn't make a secret of it. Daniel spoke about his God openly. Is he in encouraging him to break the law here? Ooh. Well, he's already broken it, so, you <laughs> know. For a penny but that's for a good, a I'd never caught that before. That's good, yeah. he. It's exactly what he's saying. <laughs> Forget the stupid law. Call it your God. Maybe he can do something, because I can't. <coughs> now, of course, he could have, but he was not psychologically in the place where he believed he could. And he would have lost his reign, wouldn't he? If he broke the laws of the Medes and the Persians? Well, maybe. Maybe not. Because what he's going to do, 
I mean, there, there are ways of engineering things, like getting rid of all of these people all at once in a morning hour <laughs> and no one being the wiser. Um, anyhow, he, um, Daniel had made no secret of his faith. Darius is well aware of it, and he understands very well how Daniel got to be where he is. And a stone is brought, and they laid it upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signets of his lords, so that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. So that everybody who comes will see, oh, this is uh, tamper-proof. The emperor and all of his guys have, su- have sealed it, and if we mess with it, the combined might and power of the Persian bureaucracy and Persian army is going to be after us. Uh, yeah, we'll leave it alone. Now, a couple things here before we we reach the climax of the story. Um, first of all, Satan. There's more than Who's meets the eye here. <laughs> yeah, roaring lion. He's managed to get the emperor of the world, the Jews world anyway, to shut down all prayer for a month. And that would include formal worship, synagogue worship, as well as private worship, done out loud at least. Um, And as I mentioned in passing, the psychologists tell us it takes a month to establish a habit. What Satan was wanting for was a silent world, a world that stopped calling up to God, that just gave up on God and was content to appeal to the state for all of its needs. It's like an emotionally abusive partner. Yeah. Cutting, controlling Cutting. communication. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Especially from someone who might actually be able to help you, or in this, mm-hmm. some, this case, the only one who can help. The other thing is, is the mere facts of what has befallen Daniel. He is God's prophet, and in that sense, um, an anointed one, a messiah. And he is taken from an upper room. He is brought rather against his will, but not without, but he offers no resistance before the man who rules the area where he is sentenced to a death he does not deserve. And he ends up in a cave with a stone rolled in front of it, a cave sealed, a stone sealed by the emperor. This is the story of Jesus. And like the fiery furnace, the lion's den should remind us uh, of the of the nature of sin and death. In um, the next chapter, in chapter seven, Daniel's going to have a vision, a night vision, where he'll see great four great beasts come up out of the sea, and the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon its feet as a man, and the man's heart was given to it. And we're told later that that is Babylon. Babylon is a lion. In the person of Nebuchadnezzar, it uh, had its animal heart removed and was given a human heart. That is, Nebuchadnezzar was born again. But when it first seized on Judah, it was a lion. And Judah went into the lion's mouth, as it were. He went into the lion's den. And that's how Daniel and Israel got to be where they are. They're in Babylon because the lion swallowed them up. What happens? Is, I mean, isn't that death when the lion swallows you? When you find yourself in the lion's den with hungry lions, aren't you, isn't death certain? How do you get out of that? It takes a miracle. It takes resurrection. And here you, we can think also of Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. And they were very dry. 
The lions were hungry. (laughs) The lions were very hungry. We'll see the bones of the other people here in just a second. Babylon, like Egypt, was not simply the land of bondage. It was death. It was Satan's kingdom. It was hell. It was it was God's curse, God cutting his people off from his presence. And yet, as in the case of the fiery furnace, where the Son of God appeared amongst them, with them, mm-hmm. here God sends his angel to be with Daniel throughout the night, so that though he is in fact there, he he survives, and he's coming out again. And it's the enemies who are going to be destroyed by the lions. Mm-hmm. So this, there is a further preaching of the gospel here. It's it, it it points to this the the fiery furnace and the lion's den both both point to the exodus that Cyrus is about to initiate when he sends God's people resurrected as it were out of captivity back to the promised land, but it points beyond that to the resurrection of Christ, who described his own death and resurrection as an exodon in his mm-hmm. conversation with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. So this this is not just a, a good morality tale of if you are faithful to God and pray three times a day, no matter what, God will save you from everything. That's not <laughs> the point here. The point is to preach the gospel to us. We have a God who can bring us back from death, from the most horrible kinds of bondage, and he will not desert us. Uh, and we're even shown in picture form what that looks like when Jesus went to the cross and to the, into the tomb. Well, the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him. So he's, he's really in a bad mood. He's very sad. His sleep went from him. It's a long night. He doesn't... He, and then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. So as soon as it qualifies as morning by any technicality, he's there. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, as opposed to all of the gods of wood and stone, which are (laughs) definitely not living. um, The king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. And in his mouth, it's not vain flattery. He really means it. He's offering him the gospel. King, receive my God as your God and have eternal life. Side note on living God. Um, There are two books, well, there's one book particularly, in um, the Apocrypha called Bell and the Dragon, which are fan fiction on Daniel. (laughs) And um, in, in both cases, Daniel's confronted with something an idol that seems to consume food, even and and even if you put the food in and lock the room, the food's gone the next day. So obviously it's the idol that's eating it. And another case, a dragon, which either could have been a, uh, the last one of the last of the dinosaurs in that area, or might have been mechanical, depending on how you read it. But the, but in that story, it's Darius again, and the contention at both points is this is a living god. Darius says of his idols. Now, he didn't have idols. The Persians didn't worship idols. But for the sake of the fan fiction, that's, that's, what this, that's the storyline. And in both cases, Daniel is able to, in one case, reveal the secret of how the idol actually works, and the other of blowing up the dragon by stuffing its mouth full of <laughs> gooey stuff. That sounds like Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yes. And um, 
but the, the, again, the point of contention with the, with the pagan world, our God is alive. Your God's not. Your God's dead. Your God doesn't do anything. Your God just sits there. Well, our God eats. No, that's actually the priest sneaking in and eating the food. Well, this God moves around. Yeah, okay, he's like a giant lizard. Let me stuff something in his mouth and he'll um, blow him. He'll have a gas attack and die. And <laughs> um, the, the fact that our God is a living God, he's not an abstract concept. He's not an idea. He's not a force. Uh, he is life itself. He is living and therefore fruitful. He begets his son. He breathes forth his spirit. He is at rest and yet ever active, as Augustine says at the end of his confessions. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Daniel continues, My God has sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouths that they have not hurt me for as much as before him, innocence he was found in me, and, uh, and also before the O King have I done no hurt. You know, a lot of people might argue, you did, you were, you were a rabble rouser, you got, you got your friend in trouble. What was so, why couldn't you at least just close the windows and make it all nice? Because my God did not require that of me. Obeying the civil authorities doesn't go that far. I didn't. It is not my fault that he walked into the trap or that they sprang it on him. I didn't do the hurt. They did. And interestingly enough, the king realizes this. He's not at all upset with Daniel. First of all, Daniel's alive. Secondly, miracle. Um, <laughs> so um, Daniel was taken up out of the den. Um, the king was exceeding glad for him. They commanded that she should be taken. They should take Daniel out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and there was no manner of hurt found upon him. Sounds like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because he believed in his God. He was saved by faith. And the king commanded, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel. Now we're not told if the king simply sent his soldiers to their beds, knocked on the doors, grabbed them, and brought them here. It's possible. I, I I know if I was one of these wicked men, I would want to be there and make sure the king wasn't pulling a fast one. I mean, you know, the, the, the Daniel comes up and there's nothing on it. There's no scratch. I would be inclined to say, well, I bet the lions weren't even hungry. Someone drugged them or fed them or something. Let's get some new lions and, oh, really? <laughs> Do you want to go check and make sure the lions aren't yeah. hungry? Yeah, they look pretty hungry to me. But whether it was that or whether he, the king just had them drug out of bed and and brought there, he he figures they tried to get an innocent man killed. What That's murder. The punishment for yeah. that be? The punishment for that should be execution by lion. And so they cast them into the <laughs> den of lions. They were lion when they said Daniel uh, agreed to the law. Uh, they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children, their wives. Okay, maybe not. We don't know the context. <laughs> Darius thought it was just. And, and Daniel doesn't seem to protest. The lions had mastery of them and break all their bones in pieces or ever they came at the bottom of the den. These bones aren't getting any better. <laughs> then King Darius, much, it took multiple chapters for Nebuchadnezzar to come to faith in the God of Israel, the God of heaven. Darius writes this. And to all people, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth, and he worketh signs and wonders in heaven and in earth. 
who hath delivered Daniel. Notice, not Belteshazzar. He hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That confession of faith is not unlike Rahab's confession and Nebuchadnezzar's. Uh, when Gentiles come to know the true living God, the, one of the first things they pick upon is this God is absolutely sovereign. He's above all gods. All other gods are nothing compared to him. He reigns in heaven and earth. He does according to his will. He overrules kings. You know, and, and, and for again, for Americans, that doesn't carry the same way. Well, well yeah, a lot of people can overturn the president's uh, decree or executive order or veto or a bill through Congress. No, that's the king was God walking on earth. Mm-hmm. And this is a God who can shut them down and overturn everything they've, do, they've done and everything they intend to do. He's that sovereign. There's, mm-hmm. there's nothing, no one that can stand up to him. And the, the context of sovereignty in, in kingdom terms, I think mm-hmm. the, the Calvinist tradition or the neo-Calvinist tradition, <laughs> uh, the emphasis there on sovereignty without defining it as it has been defined throughout history mm waters it down and makes it, you know, we, it's tempting to think sovereign means God is the one who arranges everything. Like he's the one who makes sure you find your keys when you lose them. <laughs> like that's not the gospel. No. Yes. God does that, but that's not what it means for him to be sovereign. It means he's the ruler. <laughs> it he's means he has ruler. all authority. And the ability to accomplish his purposes in his will, both in heaven and in earth. Uh, without such a God, we have no savior. If God is just a senior citizen of the universe, the first among many powers, then we're stuck. Where there's mm-hmm. uh, there's nothing. But the, the, another thing here, he delivers, he saves, he rescues, and he works signs and wonders. Um, signs and wonders from a pagan point of view were simply bubblings up of chaos from underneath and it was a normal part of the way the world worked because the universe is some kind of dialectical synthesis of of (laughs) chaos and order but darius understands that signs means here's a sovereign god who orchestrates the universe and yet can change that any way he wants at any time to emphasize what he's doing or what he wants done or who he approves of right now in this instant and no one can thwart it. No one can turn it back. No one can stop it. It's this kind of God that he is willing to trust and to whom he commends his entire empire. Mm-hmm. He, this is an official document. This is not simply a personal statement, although it is certainly that. But it's written to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. It is in all of his kingdom, which was fairly large at the time. And, and notice what he, what he says them, uh, to them. That men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Be afraid of this God. Take him seriously. Don't blow him off. Later on in the book of Revelation, when an angel goes out and and, uh, proclaims the everlasting gospel, he does so in words that are a little unusual. He says, uh, fear God and give him glory. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. Because of the everlasting gospel is to be preached to them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people, which is not very far from what this says. So a key element in gospel preaching is to teach people the fear of God, but it's not taught by the precepts of men. It's taught by the death and resurrection of Christ through the preaching 
the spirit-empowered preaching um, of the gospel. So Darius, as far as I can see, is at this point a convert. And that brings us to uh, the last sentence there, the last verse. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And, and historians have worried this to pieces. First, secular histor historians know Cyrus. They don't know Darius. And there are things like, who is Darius anyway? Um, and evangelicals try to come up with some good responses based on the limited knowledge they had at the time. John Whitcomb wrote a book on Darius the Mede. Turned out that later on, archaeological evidence turned up that showed that his, his argument didn't hold water. There were there was uh, Cambyses, Cyrus's son, who's a candidate. There was a a man who was a governor about the time, but died before any of this really happened. There was someone else who was a middleman, but none of them really fit the mold, because Darius obviously is claiming total power. He's not saying send it to me and I'll pass it on to my boss Cyrus. Mm -hmm. Back in chapter five, the last verse, three score and two years old, he's sixty two, so. He's young enough to be Cyrus. He's old enough to not be anybody else. And so when we come to this last verse, the the word and, as happens many, many times in Scripture, probably ought to be translated as even. Mm. Um, Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius, even in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Because way back in chapter 1, we were told that Daniel continued even under the first year of King Cyrus. Well, here we are. And then here, <laughs> here the story of Daniel ends. Yeah. And um, there's not enough time for someone named Darius to briefly be king and then pass it on to Cyrus. And Isaiah, when he prophesied of the coming of the Persian Empire, said, it will be Cyrus who will do all these things. <laughs> it's kind of like the Sandlot. Where yeah. all the kids are like, the king of Crash, the sultan of Swat. Exactly. <laughs> you mean those are all the same guy? Yeah. <laughs> and we should know by now that the kings of the ancient world often had throne names and were called different things by their conquered peoples. And sometimes not all the names were, you know. Nice. Polite. <laughs> um, there are other examples in scripture. I don't want to waste our time with that right now. That's... That's a study for another time and more technicalities. But the assumption that that's what's going on here pulls everything together. We've been dealing with Cyrus all along by his title that the Medes apparently knew him by, which is Darius. His given name was Cyrus. He is the son on the one side of a Mede on the other side of a Persian. So he is both a Mede and a Persian and pulls the two things together, which was basically how he came to power. And as a Mede, he fulfills the prophecy of Jeremiah that the Medes would destroy Babylon. And as Cyrus, he fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah, who said that someone named Cyrus is going to let God's people go and rebuild the temple. And it answers to the beginning of the book where we're waiting. Daniel is going to outlive the Babylonian kingdom to see Cyrus. And he does. Which now makes all the more sense when we come to Ezra, which I think is where we go next. The first chapter of Ezra... We read this. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth and hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. 
which is in Judah, who is there among all of his people? His God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God. How did how did Cyrus know that God had charged him with this? The obvious thing is someone walked up to him with a scroll of Isaiah and said, Boss, there's something you've got to read. And the obvious person to do that would be Daniel. Because mm-hmm. we know that Daniel had the scrolls of Jeremiah. They're mentioned later on that he had been tracking the Babylonian captivity and that he knew by, by the prophets that the time was up and yet things weren't moving. And this would have been a great time for him to go in and say, um, in case you didn't get the word, because the office memo didn't come through from Kevin, <laughs> here's what God wants you to do. And notice, although it is true that Cyrus sent the vessels and idols of other temples home, he didn't say this about them. He did not say, the Lord God of heaven hath mm-hmm. given me a charge and given me all the kingdoms of the world, and he is the God. So this, is, this, this is happening after the lion's den. Is it's the the problem of every time travel movie ever. Like if yeah. if I know this is going to happen, well, I shouldn't tell the person because that's <laughs> then it, you you can't mess with the time stream. Yeah, <laughs> but it's like Daniel's Don't been waiting, and he's like, stream. "Hmm, it's not happening. Maybe I should tell him." Maybe, maybe yeah, maybe it happens because I tell him. Yeah. All right, I go. Well, the, the, according to Josephus, the priest showed uh, Alexander the prophecies concerning him, <laughs> and sped, sped him on his way to defeat the Persian Empire. So, thus end our studies in Daniel, and I believe next time we will pick up with Ezra and with the second great exodus, the return out of the Babylonian captivity. Very cool. I look forward to that. We should probably have Brian back with us by that point. Yeah. We can hope so. We can hope so. We miss Brian. Yeah. I'm going to recommend P.G. Woodhouse. I know we've probably already done this, but I was just thinking the other day how I want to be a better writer. And so the two things I should be reading are the King James Bible and P.G. Woodhouse. All right. Well, since you <laughs> threw that one in my lap, I'm going to recommend reading the King James Bible. Oh, there you go. Because, one, if you can't read it, I'm sorry, you're to a certain degree functionally illiterate. It is the foundation of Ouch, everything. That's kind of rude. I know. But it, as a teacher... Again and again, I encounter people who cannot read simple English that was written not in the time of, of King James, but that was written 100, 200, 300 years ago. The Constitution, the Federalist mm-hmm. Papers, people cannot read it. They, they say, what is, I don't know what this means. Um, in fact, one young pastor I was talking to was kind of asking if his kids could not memorize their, their memory verses from the King James, but instead use the new King James or something else. And I said, well, we can we can do that, but please understand, this is going to deprive them of struggling with the, the root of our language, and it's going to affect their ability to understand things that were written later. He said, yeah, you know, that's funny. I have my people in my church reading the Puritans, and they really are just having trouble understanding the English. Maybe they should have read the King James Bible. <laughs> Maybe they should have read the King James Bible. And that's not even to talk about all the commentaries and uh, theological books. Yeah, that I have mean been the King James Bible based on the King James. Yeah, and it, honestly, the King James Bible is so much easier to understand than the Puritans. Uh, <laughs> yeah, from experience. and sometimes the Dickens, for that matter. <laughs> yeah, um, or the Federalist Papers. Mm-hmm. It's not that hard. Um, now, if you want to read the New King James because it's more comfortable, that's great. I'm not. That's. I'm, I'm not. I'm not arguing King James only. I'm simply saying 
if you want to understand literature in the English mm -hmm. language, you yeah. need to read the King James and become familiar with it. I've been reading mm -hmm. uh, Dorothy Sayers and uh, P.T. James and uh, all uh, Agatha Christie. These these are people whose minds are soaked in British literature. They got to be good writers, and one mm -hmm. thing they read along the way was the King James Bible, the Authorized Version. They also read the prayer book, which comes up countless times, mm -hmm. and is also a beautifully written book. So, mm -hmm. uh, there are turns of phrase that you'll <laughs> yeah. read in random places, and you're like, "That's from the Bible." Do you know that? And then, like, once you trace that back, oh, I think it was in Bleak House. Mm. There was one passage where he's like, this is like moving the ancient land markers. And I'm like, why was that a big deal? Because yeah. that's from the Bible. That's from <laughs> you the know, Bible. It's biblical yeah. law. And so it's Dickens is bringing in this whole religious context and communicating the weight with which this person right. viewed the action. And you just don't pick up on that if you yeah, haven't if you don't, read If King you've James. never read the Bible, and, and that's gonna, the King James Version, and then and, and read it probably more than once because it's mm -hmm. it's... You don't get it Heavy all the going. first time. What you don't? Yeah, you, you don't, don't remember it all the first time. <laughs> um, now, if, uh, if if you're going to read the New King James and and you're going to be faithful, and that's and you can only fit in one. Okay, that's great. I'd rather have you read something you you do understand. When we're talking for at being educated, for being mm -hmm. literary, for understanding the literary tradition of England and America, it's it is it is the foundation. It's the keystone. It is not Old English. It is Modern English. <laughs> yes. Chaucer is not Old English either. No, neither is Chaucer or <laughs> Mallory. it's harder to read They're Middle the English. Yes. You know. So, um, for, if nothing else, pick up the Psalms mm -hmm. and just start reading. Yeah. Pick up the Sermon on the Mount and find out where common phrases came from. This is very different from this discussion, but uh, some of my kids were talking about, we're, we're, we started reading the Inferno. And some of them were talking about the so-called impossible test that no one ever really passes. And one of the, one young lady said, abandon all hope. And I looked across the room and said, what did you just say? What? No, no, no. What did you say? Abandon all hope. Do you know where that comes from? <laughs> no. Those are the words inscribed over hell in the inferno. <laughs> oh. That's oh. why you're making us read yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cultural literacy, if nothing else. Yeah, this is a very different discussion from like what you should read for, you know, devotional. Yeah, that's, like, that's not. It's that's a different conversation. Yeah. Right, it is. Yeah, so we, I, I can jump on board with that recommendation <laughs> to the surprise of no one. Read your King James Bible. <laughs> All right. Well, we should wrap up there. So yeah. thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks also to David, our producer, and my lawfully wedded husband. Thank you to our financial supporters. We appreciate you keeping the show rolling. Uh, if you, listener, would like to join their number, you can visit our website, anchor.fm slash haltingtowardszion, or our Patreon, patreon.com slash haltingtowardszion. If you'd like to get in touch with us for any reason, please send us your recommendations, by the way, because um, the mailbag episode will be super fun if you do. Um, send us your recommendations and any other comments, questions, insults, uh, haltingtowardszion at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.